You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 49, Meanwhile in Europe. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in the summer of 1799. Napoleon had just boarded a ship bound for France, leaving Egypt and the East behind forever. He had been away from Europe for over a year. Momentous things had occurred in his absence. No one knew it yet, but the conditions were nearly right for Napoleon to realize his greatest ambition— Before the end of the 18th century, Bonaparte would be the ruler of France. In this episode, we'll get caught up on the developments back in Europe while Napoleon was away pursuing his dreams in the East. A new coalition had formed against France, and war had returned to the continent. As always, the Republican government was a morass of factionalism and intrigues, and struggling for legitimacy. It was uncertain times for the average people of France, too. In many ways, the country was still recovering from the upheavals of the revolution. Between war, rebellion, and emigration, there had been a significant population loss in major cities and towns. Now, on the eve of a new war, some settlements were still up to 10% smaller than they'd been before the revolution. International trade had been devastated. Between the British blockade and revolutionary upheaval in France's colonies, this sector had barely survived. Urban areas and maritime commerce were the most dynamic and lucrative parts of the French economy, so this damage inflicted by war and revolution stung particularly badly. The government had made great strides in controlling inflation, but the problem was still far from eradicated. Prices of food and agricultural goods remained unstable, which hurt both producers and consumers. There was also a law and order problem. Economic deprivation, conscription, and social upheaval had pushed many men to the margins of society, where some inevitably turned to crime. Parts of rural France were overrun with thieves and bandits. With all these problems facing the country and another war on the horizon, the prevailing mood seems to have been exhaustion. Under the authoritarian directory constitution, only a small proportion of the population had the right to participate in politics and only a tiny fraction of them actually bothered to exercise the franchise. Voter turnout in elections of this period may have reached as low as 10% of the strictly limited electorate. But whether the country was ready or not, war was coming. As you'll recall from previous episodes, the peace after the War of the First Coalition was uneasy. 
The Treaty of Campo Formio, negotiated by Napoleon, settled few of the underlying points of conflict between France and her enemies. After the treaty, the Republic pursued a muscular, aggressive foreign policy, which exacerbated the potential for future conflict. For their part, France's rivals weren't terribly interested in a long-term peace either. The new status quo in Europe was more of a cold war. The Republic did not demobilize its huge armies, and the old regime powers immediately began rebuilding their military strength. It was a question of when, not if, a new conflict would break out. We've discussed a few of the flashpoints in this Cold War in previous episodes, Switzerland, Ireland, and Malta, but I saved the most important for last, Rome. Pope Pius VI was not only the spiritual head of the Roman Catholic Church, but the sovereign political leader of much of central Italy. His opposition to the Republican assault on the power of the Church, and his fear of encroaching French influence in Italy, had made him one of the most implacable opponents of the Revolution. Napoleon's conquests in Italy brought France to the Pope's doorstep, and Bonaparte was able to extract huge concessions from the Vatican, in the form of money, artistic and cultural treasures, and official diplomatic recognition of the French Republic. The first revolutionary ambassador to the Holy See would be none other than Joseph Bonaparte, Napoleon's gregarious older brother. As was often the case in this era, the new French embassy quickly made itself a rallying point for the local liberals. Even after the Treaty of Campo Formio, Italy remained an arena of competition between France and Austria, and the French sought to strengthen their hand by encouraging radical republican politics. In December of 1797, a demonstration by Roman Republicans turned violent. During the ensuing crackdown by Vatican forces, a member of the French diplomatic mission, General Léonard Dufault, was killed. The rights and protections afforded to diplomats were already well established in the 18th century, so this represented a serious international incident. According to the Vatican, Dufault got what was coming to him. They claimed he was the leader and chief instigator of the riot and thus outside the protection of diplomatic immunity. Obviously, the French denied this. According to the Republicans, Dufault was deliberately targeted for assassination, under the cover of the chaos of the riot, presumably to send a message to France that they should stay out of Roman affairs and rein in their local supporters. It's entirely possible there was some truth to both claims. In any case, Dufault's death gave France a perfect pretext to invade. In February of 1798, Republican troops entered the Papal State. The small, disorganized Papal army was too weak to offer any resistance. One interesting side note, the French invasion was led by Alexandre Berthier, Napoleon's chief of staff, one of the few occasions in his entire career in which he actually led troops in the field, Remember, this was not the first time French troops had invaded Vatican territory. In fact, it had only been 18 months since the last time it had happened. But in 1796, the French were content to be paid off without even entering Rome. This time, they had much more drastic plans. Republican troops seized the city. Pope Pius was taken into custody and deported to confinement in France. Berthier declared a new French-style revolutionary government. For the first time in over 1,800 years, Rome would be a republic. This was an exciting moment for the revolutionaries, who had long looked to ancient republican Rome for inspiration. 
but for the rest of Europe, particularly in Catholic countries, it's hard to imagine a more inflammatory act. The shock waves were felt most acutely in two capitals, Naples and Vienna. King Ferdinand of Naples came from a branch of the Bourbon dynasty, the same family which had ruled over France until the Revolution. His domain included almost all of Italy south of the Papal States. With the Papal States suddenly gone, replaced by a French sister republic, the revolution was on Naples' doorstep. Naples was the last independent state in Italy of any significance. If the French harbored any further territorial ambitions on the peninsula, Naples was their only remaining target. Obviously, King Ferdinand was alarmed. As for the Austrians, despite their defeats in the first Italian campaign, they still saw themselves as major players in Italian politics. Remember, Napoleon had compensated their territorial losses in the Treaty of Campo Formio by granting them control of the former Venetian provinces of northeastern Italy, so they still had a significant foothold on the peninsula. Just like the Neapolitans, they felt their Italian interests were threatened by the formation of a new pro-French state around Rome. On a more abstract level, Archduke Francis II of Austria was also the Holy Roman Emperor, a title which carried with it a special relationship with the Vatican and Catholicism. More than any other Catholic sovereign, the emperor was supposed to be a protector of the Pope and the interests of the Church. Over the long, tumultuous history of the Holy Roman Empire, this relationship between the emperor and the papacy had waxed and waned. But in the 1790s, the Habsburgs and the Vatican enjoyed a generally good and mutually beneficial relationship. The destruction of the temporal power of the Church and the captivity of Pope Pius was an affront to the prestige of the Holy Roman Emperor, and, in practical terms, the loss of a very useful ally. The Austrians would not take this lying down. And so, as is often the case when two powers are faced by a common threat, the Neapolitans and the Austrians began secret negotiations aimed at answering encroaching French influence with military force. In November of 1798, this alliance finally bore fruit when Austrian-led Neapolitan troops crossed into the territory of the Roman Republic. The consuls of this new republic proved no better at organizing armed resistance than the pope they'd replaced. Rome felt the Neapolitans without a fight, and they declared the restoration of the old papal regime. Austria's diplomats had been busy. By the end of January 1799, the Habsburgs had secured formal alliances with Great Britain and the Ottoman Empire, which were already at war with France, and convinced Portugal and Russia to join the war as well. Napoleon had unwittingly provoked the Tsar in the conquest of Malta, and now France was reaping the whirlwind. The War of the Second Coalition had begun. This time, France was not fighting alone. There were the sister republics, the Cisalpine Republic in northern Italy, the Helvetic Republic in what was once Switzerland, and the Batavian Republic in the former Netherlands. Despite their ideological differences, the Republic had also managed to rekindle France's old alliance with Spain. Their ranks were further swelled by around 10,000 Polish exiles, eager to free their homeland, which had recently been wiped off the map and partitioned between the great powers. Nonetheless, the odds were against the French yet again. The Austrians had poured tremendous resources into rebuilding their shattered armies, and had made great strides in a very short period of time. Russia had one of the most formidable militaries in Europe. The armies of the Tsar would soon swell to somewhere around 400,000 troops. 
the core of which had been honed to a terrible efficiency by decades of expansionist wars on Russia's frontiers. And, as always, the tremendous financial and maritime power of Britain was arrayed against France. Apart from the great powers, there were still thousands of French émigrés scattered all over Europe who remained as committed as ever to the destruction of the revolution and the restoration of the old order. These exiles were disproportionately wealthy, noble, and well-connected. Some of them were your stereotypical, effete, aristocratic buffoons, but others were tremendously dangerous opponents for the Republic. And the revolution still had enemies inside France as well. Royalism had been suppressed, both as a political movement and as an armed insurgency, but the underlying grievances of the royalists remained. There were still large pockets of territory where much of the population supported, or at least sympathized with, the counter-revolution. As recently as the summer of 1795, royalist gangs and death squads had operated quite openly in southern France, murdering suspected left-wing sympathizers. This was the first so-called white terror in history. The return of war meant the return of conscription and government requisitions, which were particularly galling burdens in areas that did not support the revolution. It also meant new opportunities for foreign support for anyone who took up arms against the republic. French royalists were contemplating coming out into the open once again to oppose the revolution on the field of battle. By the summer of 1799, there would be royalist rebellions underway into the north and the southwest. This was the dangerous situation in which France found itself at the outbreak of the war. Despite the triumphs in the War of the First Coalition and the halting progress towards internal stability, the revolution was suddenly quite precarious once again, and the opening moves of the conflict did little to inspire confidence. General Jourdan led the French advance into Germany once again, but was immediately countered by a much larger Austrian army under Archduke Charles, brother of the Emperor. The Austrians won resounding victories, pushing the French back over the Rhine. Jourdan returned to Paris to beg the Directory for more men and resources, but the strain of facing the government after suffering such severe defeats seems to have broken him. He wound up applying for medical leave, which was accepted. Command of French forces in southern Germany passed to André Massena, who had served so brilliantly under Napoleon during the First Italian Campaign. To the north, the Royal Navy landed a combined Anglo-Russian army in the Batavian Republic, about 65 kilometers or 40 miles north of Amsterdam. This was a risky, daring operation, given the limited capabilities of 18th century navies, but the British had the know-how to pull it off. Upon landing successfully, the British and Russian forces quickly overran the northern half of the North Holland Peninsula, establishing a secure beachhead. They also managed to capture or destroy roughly half of the Batavian Navy, a big step towards ensuring continued British naval dominance. The French and Batavians organized an army under General Guillaume Brun to hold off the coalition forces and protect Amsterdam, but they were badly outnumbered and were defeated in their first encounter with the enemy eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. 
brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The most dramatic actions of this first phase of the war occurred in Italy and Switzerland. This time, the French would not only be facing the Austrians and their Italian allies, but the Russians as well. When the campaign began in earnest in the spring of 1799, there were already tens of thousands of Russian soldiers in this theater of operations, with the prospect of many more to come. It was a worrying number for the Republicans, but perhaps more worrying was the man who led them, Alexander Suvorov. Napoleon was fast becoming the most respected commander of his generation, but there was no question that the 68-year-old Alexander Suvorov was the most respected living commander of his generation. He didn't look like much, small, gaunt, and prematurely feeble after years of hard living on campaign, but no one alive could match his record on the battlefield. Indeed, hardly any commander of any era of history could claim to be his equal. Over the course of his career, Suvorov had independent command in 63 major engagements, and had won all 63, a perfect record. Now, we can't make comparisons between generals based on their stats. They're not baseball players or boxers. But never losing a battle over the course of such a long, active career is an impressive achievement. If anyone suspected the old general had lost some of his edge at 68, the opening weeks of the war put those doubts to rest. Suvorov stormed through northern Italy, almost as quickly as Napoleon had three years earlier. He shattered the French army of Italy, killing, wounding, or capturing more than a quarter of the opposing force at Cassano in April of 1799. Elsewhere in Italy, Habsburg forces were also pushing the French back, although in nowhere near as dramatic fashion. It was almost like Napoleon's first Italian campaign in reverse. Suvorov's men sometimes covered nearly 20 miles in a day. Despite the network of defensible rivers that crisscrossed northern Italy, the Austrians and Russians could not be stopped. Whatever they tried, the French always found themselves outmaneuvered and outgeneraled. In late June, the French and Austro-Russian forces in northern Italy met in a climactic three-day battle on the banks of the Trebia River in northwestern Italy. It was a hard-fought contest, but ultimately ended in complete victory for the coalition. Nearly half the Republican army was killed, wounded, or captured. In the aftermath of the battle, the French were forced to abandon almost all of northern Italy. In the course of just a few months, nearly all of Napoleon's great conquests of 1796 and 7 had been wiped away. The headlines of these defeats greeted Bonaparte when the British delivered that packet of French newspapers to Alexandria after the Battle of Aboukir. As you can see, they painted a grim picture of the Republic's strategic situation and showed that his own personal legacy as the conqueror of Italy was unraveling. With all that context, it's perhaps a bit more understandable that Napoleon felt the need to rush home as quickly as he did. It wouldn't have been obvious from the newspapers, but Bonaparte probably suspected that France's challenges were not limited to the battlefield. Back in Paris, the government was riven with internal problems. The last time we checked in on revolutionary politics was way back in episode 37, during the coup of Fructidor in 
1797. A faction within the Directory had called upon the army to oust two rival directors, and break the power of resurgent conservative royalists, who were attempting to return to power through a combination of illegal subversion and legal democratic politics. The coup had solved the government's immediate problems, but had merely papered over the deeper issues which had made the Directory unstable. In the year since the coup, nothing had been done to address these underlying fundamental problems with the political system. The Directory continued essentially as it had before, not entirely incompetent, but corrupt and insular. The government still had no real natural constituency or organic support among the population. Those who backed the Directory did so because they benefited directly from its largesse, or because they saw no other alternative. In the spring of 1798, there were new elections for one-third of the seats in the lower house of the legislature. Only a minority of the people of France were eligible to vote, and only a minority of them bothered to cast a ballot. But the results were clear. It was another resounding defeat for the ruling faction of the Directory. The right wing was in total disarray, still reeling from the coup of Fructidor and subsequent repression. With conflict looming on the horizon, voters turned to the faction that had mobilized France to victory in the last war, the left. Left-wing candidates won over a 100 seats, compared to around 40 for centrist and pro-government candidates. There were already a large number of radical and left-leaning deputies in the legislature. Once these new members took their seats, the left would have ironclad control over parliament. This was a defeat for the government, but it was an opportunity for French democracy and for the long-term political stability of the revolution. The new left-wing deputies were much more moderate than the Jacobins of 1794. They weren't part of the pro-government clique, but they shared a lot of the same basic values and goals as the ruling party. The left wanted to defend the republic, not destroy it. They weren't quite as zealous about it, but that's what the government wanted too. If the ruling faction had accepted defeat and allowed a loyal opposition to form within the legislature, the left could have provided a safe, healthy outlet for dissent, and provided some oversight over a government that desperately needed it. Any parliamentary democracy needs that type of adversarial competition to function properly. This is what motivates people to take their grievances with the government to the ballot box, rather than engaging in subversive plots. The fear of losing elections or taking a beating in the legislature is what keeps those in power honest and responsive to public opinion. Of course, that's not what happened. The ruling clique of the Directory were venal, self-interested, short-sighted men who had learned from years of bitter experience in revolutionary politics to trust no one and to hang on to power like their lives depended on it, because they often did. They had become accustomed to ruling by coups and authoritarian, anti-democratic decrees. They had no faith in the people, the democratic process, or the political institutions which they themselves had set up. And so, they used their majority in the legislature to invalidate the election of every new deputy deemed insufficiently supportive of the government. By the stroke of a pen, 106 men were stripped of their victories, leaving only 44 loyal deputies to join the legislature. When the government had suppressed the conservatives the previous year, there was at least some democratic justification behind the coup. The right wing was planning to destroy the constitution and end the revolution. And so, the argument went, 
the government had no choice but to use undemocratic methods in the defense of democracy. It's a flimsy excuse, but there was at least some truth to it. There could be no such justification for this new purge of the left-wing deputies. If anything, they were even more fervent supporters of the revolutionary order than the government. It was pure authoritarianism, a craven, naked grab for power. With the opposition checked, the government could have reformed the system if they'd wanted to. They had never actually allowed the Constitution to function as designed, so clearly they didn't view it as workable. However, it is probably clear to you by now that most of the men who ruled the Directory had little interest in reform. They were perfectly happy ruling by coup and decree, using force to kick the can down the road every time some new crisis emerged. However, not everyone in the political center was content with business as usual. There were some who recognized the current system was untenable. The Republic could never be effectively governed, perhaps not even survive, with this improvised authoritarian regime set up on top of a non-functioning constitution. These people weren't radicals who wanted to overthrow the ruling order, but they understood the government's current path was unsustainable. They wanted to revise the constitution, improve and institutionalize the current system in the hopes of finally bringing some stability and good governance to a country exhausted by nearly a decade of revolutionary upheaval. The driving political and intellectual force behind this faction was one man, and a somewhat surprising one, Emmanuel C.S., a 51-year-old writer and philosopher. He'd been a Catholic clergyman before the revolution, and even today is still sometimes referred to by his old ecclesiastical title, the Abbe Sies. Sies was one of the leading figures of the first phase of the revolution, in those early days when there was still widespread hope that France was entering a humane new age of enlightenment and progress. As a liberal intellectual, Sies became one of the loudest prophets of this new light of reason, freedom, and democracy. Every revolution needs some program to rally around. It's very easy for radicals to say what they're against, but much more difficult to articulate a clear critique of what's wrong with the old order and suggest an alternative. As France's political crisis developed in the late 1780s, an essay by C.S. entitled What is the Third Estate? became one of the most important of these intellectual rallying points for the revolutionaries. C.S. was elected to the fateful Estates General, the feudal parliament which met in 1789 and became the driving force behind the revolution. Through his writing, he quickly became one of its most prominent members. But as I'm sure you'll recall from our earliest episodes, that period of revolutionary optimism didn't last long, and neither did C.S. as a political leader. He was eloquent on the page, but lacked charisma and personal magnetism in the flesh. There are examples of successful politicians who get away without being good at glad-handing or rousing oratory, but they tend to be savvy backroom operators, and Siez wasn't that either. He was an intellectual, and prone to think of politics as a matter of big ideas and philosophical questions, rather than a crude negotiation between competing interests. He courted disciples and admirers, when he should have been looking for allies and supporters. And so, as the revolution heated up, Siez fell by the wayside, supplanted by men who understood how to build and exercise power. And perhaps that was for the best, because when French politics turned cutthroat, C.S. had a low enough profile that he was able to keep his head down and avoid the guillotine, 
Many of his peers did not. Famously, C.S. was supposedly once asked what he did during the terror, and he responded simply, I lived. C.S. was an idol during his years in the wilderness. He had an active mind and was a keen observer of the momentous political events occurring all around him. He continued to sharpen and revise his theories. How had this cause in which C.S. had believed so passionately veered so far off course? He certainly didn't repudiate the revolution or its ideals, but there could be no question that the France of the 1790s bore little resemblance to the free, enlightened republic which he'd envisioned in his writings. What had gone wrong? And more importantly, how might the Constitution be restructured to get the revolution back on track, ensure the people were free and their voices were heard, while also providing stability and good governance? By the late 1790s, C.S. believed he could answer some of these questions, and saw that the Directory could not, if it was even interested in trying. And so, he threw himself into national politics once again. It seems he had learned something from all those years observing revolutionary politics from the margins, because Siez managed to climb his way back to a position of influence, and rally a significant number of supporters to his side. In 1799, Siez was chosen to fill a vacancy on the Directory, and became one of the five executives of the French Republic. A remarkable journey from prominence to obscurity, then back to the very top. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There were some serious roadblocks standing in the way of Siez's agenda of constitutional reform. Under the current constitution, amendments had to be approved by three consecutive legislative sessions, a process which would take nine years. And that was assuming Siez's plan could win a majority in parliament, which was far from a sure thing. Many pro-government deputies were happy with the status quo and uninterested in changing the constitution. Most of the left-wing deputies wanted reform, but had no common ground with C.S. They wanted to empower the legislature and curtail the power of the directors. C.S. and his faction wanted to go the opposite direction, entrench the status quo in which Parliament was subservient to the directors. Furthermore, C.S. was well known as a man of the center and an opponent of the left. There would be no cooperation with the left, and they grew stronger every day. It was an iron rule of revolutionary politics that the worse the country's strategic situation was, the greater the influence of the left. People remembered the miraculous turnaround of the War of the First Coalition under the Jacobins, the way they had managed to rally the people around the government and repel France's enemies. When the War of the Second Coalition began with defeats for the Republic, many believed the best way to save the country was taking a page from the Jacobins' book bringing back some of that old radicalism to remind average people why it was important to defend the gains of the revolution. And so, despite official repression, the left was roaring back to life. On July 7th, a new radical political club appeared in Paris, the Society of the Friends of Liberty and Equality. 
Its name was clearly meant to echo that of a former political club, the Society of the Friends of the Constitution, the official name of the Jacobin Club. In September, left-wing deputies in the legislature introduced a bill called the Declaration of the Fatherland in Danger, calling for a state of national emergency and total mobilization for the war effort. A nearly identical bill with the same name had been introduced and passed by the Jacobins in 1792. It had certainly helped with the war effort, but it had also provided the legal and philosophical justification for all the worst aspects of Jacobin rule. Predictably, this made everyone else on the political scene very nervous. This new incarnation of the left seemed far more moderate and grounded than Robespierre and his ilk, but perhaps their actions spoke louder than words. What if they were trying to lull their opponents into a false sense of security, so they could slip back into power and return to the battle days of the terror? The bill was defeated, but the vote was very close. Disqualifying the hundred or so most radical deputies from the last election helped blunt the left's momentum, but didn't break it entirely. Clearly, left-wing arguments were gaining traction, both among the public and within the legislature. By mid-1799, they'd managed to install two left-wing directors in the executive. Now, this was a five-man committee, so that represented an irrelevant permanent minority. But there was a lot they could do in those positions and of course, they were now one vote away from control over the government. Despite these obstacles, Siez and his allies plowed ahead. Whatever the odds against them, they knew they could not accept this broken status quo. Like every revolutionary government before, the legitimacy of the Directory was highly dependent on battlefield victories. The defeats at the beginning of the War of the Second Coalition put the government under tremendous pressure. Something had to give— Either C.S. and his faction would break through and achieve constitutional reform, or the left would ride its new momentum to power and implement their own ideas. Either way, by 1799, the status quo was on the way out. Napoleon was not yet aware of this conflict, but he was already invested in it. C.S.'s allies included Joseph and Lucien Bonaparte, Napoleon's brothers, who had become significant political figures in their own right. Neither one was totally taken in by Siez's intellectual pretensions, but they believed strongly in constitutional reform along the lines he was proposing. These are only a few of the highlights of what was going on in France while Napoleon was in Egypt, trying to carve out his eastern empire. But I hope the general impression is clear. This was not a happy time for the Republic, to put it mildly. Was the country crying out for Napoleon to return and take charge, as Bonapartists would later claim? Well, that's a more complicated question, and one we'll tackle in the future. We'll leave things there for now. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.